I will now turn our session over to Lynn, uh, who will be facilitating the workshop. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Mitch. Hey, everybody. My name is Lynn. I'm a real compulsive overeater. It's great to be here. It's so weird. I wait for the, <laughs> the refrain. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and it's funny. Uh, yeah, really, we can't edit out anything I say? All right, well, I have to try to do the best I can then. And uh, I'm just going to start for myself with the what, what's called the set-aside prayer. And it's, uh, it helps me just kind of center myself. It's, God, please enable me to set aside everything I think I know about ego and surrender for an open mind and a new experience. And I, it's a really important one for me because I, I spent years and still can in any time just blocking out anything that doesn't fit this constraint that I've put things in. And that can even be in my shares, you know, like I've got a set, I've got my notes, right? Like nothing's supposed to interfere with that. So I really want to start every activity that I have with uh, that open mind to, uh, to be free from, you know, like really, leave room for God in there. So, um, so the topic today is ego and uh, ego versus surrender, ego and surrender. And uh, I wanted to um, just, you know, share some things that I have found in my life, uh, whether it be when I've been in ego or when I'm in surrender, and hopefully it helps uh, somebody. And so um, just some real quick details about myself. I'm, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been in program for 17 years, and I just recently celebrated seven years of abstinence. Um, so I have not been abstinent the entire time I have been here. And uh, a big part of this talk today for me was about how did that happen? And, and why, why did it happen? And how come I didn't see it coming when those, those times of not being abstinent came upon and I think that in the years that I've been here my focus on continued back-to-back -back abstinence like time treating compulsive eatingism has been a big part of some of the challenges that I've had um, because time doesn't treat my compulsive eatingism you know time abstinence abstinence doesn't treat my compulsive eatingism and in order to really know that I have to know what it really is to be a compulsive eater you know when I start a meeting and I say I'm a real compulsive eater um, I have to really diagnose myself in step one. I have to really like deep down go, am I, do I, am I the real deal? You know, and um, part of that is, of course, for me, the allergy of the body, which I absolutely, you know, can relate to certain things I eat, I can't stop certain behaviors I engage in, I seem to be compulsed to repeat them over and over again. So that's the one part of, of that powerlessness over food. The second part is that mental obsession. And uh, that mental obsession that somehow the food is going to fix it this time, that no matter what, uh, I, I've somehow, according over the years, food has become my go-to to treat restless, irritable, and discontented, and probably through progressive and continued use of food to do that. And somewhere along the line, I crossed the line, and I don't know when that was, but that's, that's what that obsession for me is. You know, things go awry or they're great. My mind tells me, oh, some food will make it better. Uh, or, you know, that's that. The third part, which is a lot about what I'm going to talk about today, is the, um, the spiritual malady, which, uh, interestingly enough, you know, in the big book, we have a couple places specifically in those first, you know, 164 that talk about the spiritual malady. And one of them is in the doctor's opinion, where the doctor starts talking about that vicious cycle of uh, restless, irritable, discontented. We're driven to the, uh, that first bite right? I can't take it anymore. And whereas a compulsive eater, where does my mind go? It goes to the food. 
that'll make it better. And then once I have done so, I've triggered the allergy and it's on and cracking. And I think that for me, I won't speak for anybody else, but I, I know a lot of people who can relate to this, is that that shame around, oh my God, can you believe I ate X or I ate so much of X or I wasn't gonna eat X again and there I ate it. And you know, my, my response to so many is, of course you would, once you picked it up, what else would happen? I mean, if you're showing up at a 12-step food recovery you know, fellowship, um, why would you be there if that wasn't what happened? Every time I picked up X, you know, I did that. And um, what I found for myself coming, um, and I'm gonna realize, I'm gonna go ahead and set a timer for myself. I realize I hadn't done that real quickly. Um, what I found for me was I started to not only, I, I, I didn't have any more the, moral issue for the food part of it really was removed. I got here in 2003 in March and I literally came in here, what's wrong with me? Like, why, why am I like this? Why do I eat X? I didn't even know that I ate X and I didn't, you know, I couldn't stop. I just knew that I kept eating and getting fatter, you know, but that being said, in program, you know, in the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous, I still didn't know why I relapsed. I didn't understand that the what was going on with me in any day experience of being miserable was not a moral issue either. And what I really had started to integrate into my life was applying the steps of Overeaters Anonymous as a means to be a better person, to be a good girl, to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and just be better. Like, what's wrong with you, right? So here I was gladly leaving behind what's wrong with you when it came to the food. And yet I was repeating things in my life that I was like, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep engaging in, in these behaviors, you know? And I had done that back in the day with all the self-help books for years. So here I was, it, so, you know, with a solution and yet not being able to apply the solution to in, in a way meaningful enough to actually really have a, I struggled. Let's just put it that way. And, you know, my struggles weren't as bad as some people's struggles, whatever. But I, I'm just really passionate about that. This is not a moral issue. And if you're struggling and you're wondering why something keeps, you know, that food keeps coming back, um, it's not moral. We have a lot of uh, opportunity to talk about how it kind of is a byproduct, I think, of this, of, of working this program, of working the program to become better. But that's not the goal. The, 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 result of this program is a spiritual awakening. So, um, so if, I'm, if I'm the same woman abstinent that I am as an active compulsive eater, what's happening, right? I am a compulsive eater. I, know, I don't get better without food, without a solution. When I take food away from me, I've taken the solution as an active compulsive eater away. So, it, you know, there are two treatments for compulsive eating-ism. One is eating right? One is eating because that's what I used for years to treat my compulsive eating ism. So what is an ism, right? What is an ism? Well, an ism is a state of mind. It's a frame of mind. It's a set of principles and doctrines that I use to run my life. Um, I use them to run my life. I, I apply these thought processes to my life and then I get a result. And what I'm here to tell you today that for me, I have turned around abstinence from an achievement or some kind of haphazard, maybe I'll get it, maybe I'll not, uh, gift from some being that just maybe somehow sticks to me, right? That's just my, you know, that's one of my, you know, for me, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> um, 
And now for me, I'm either treated or I'm not treated, right? I'm either treating my compulsive eatingism with the 12 principles underlying these steps, or I'm not. And what I'm here to tell you is it's not always a conscious choice. Things are operating underneath the surface. And that's what I'm here to talk about with this ego talk is that it, it is an underlying thought process that when I realize this and I read it in our literature, including in the appendix called the, the disease of the body, which is kind of funny that it would be in the disease of the body, but talks about the fact that this is unconscious. I have right now on my computer desktop, I've got windows running minimized, right? I've got it running. It's there. Um, and I don't see it right now. And I, you know, and I don't even remember it's up. If I have my email up, unfortunately, it may pop up on my screen while I'm on this talk. It's running underneath, the, underneath all of the other applications. This ego function is, that's exactly what's happening with the ego. This ego that we're gonna talk about is happening underneath the surface, is underneath the level of consciousness. I cannot pull up, uh, I cannot push it down if I do not see it. And what this process of the 12 steps has been for me is the process of firstly identifying it, seeing it. My fellows can point it out to me. The ones that I trust that I know have my best interest at heart. You know, we, we say we're not often we hear, don't take our inventories. Like, oh, I don't want to take your inventory. You know, I take people's inventory all the time. It's part of my ego. Um, and I have to look at that and say, you know, wow, I'm really interested in that person's part and stuff. But how do I identify something that I can't even see, right? So I, I have some things that have come up for me that are helpful. Um, so if, if I am the, uh, the compulsive eater who is, you know, trying to change, um, you know, what, and I don't want my abstinence to be something that I've achieved because we know we're told it's a gift. We know that, uh, but it is, it is a result of a process and it is an, ap an application for a demonstration. And I can say that in every area of my life. And I've said it as far as the steps are concerned. They're, to me, they're a scientific process because I try them and I see what happens. And if I get the result I like, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. So maybe if I try that again, I'll see if it happens again, right? And the thing about being a compulsive eater is if I keep getting that and then I stop, it's like, okay, now we're looking at correlation and causation, but you know, it's like only a compulsive eater would keep getting what works and then stop doing it. <laughs> that's like, that's, I wear glasses. I actually wear contacts and I wear, these are my reading glasses, which I haven't found a pair yet that I feel look good in Zoom, but you know, it is what it is. Um, if I have my glasses, I mean, I'm really blind without them. If I don't wear my contact lenses when I get up in the morning, I can barely find my car, you know, like I, I couldn't do it, you know, so I wear my contact lenses every single day and I don't get up in the morning one day on Saturday and say, oh, I'm not, I'm not blind today. I better, I could just go without it. But that's the thing about the compulsive eater, right? We, we do that. That's the thing. That's when one, and we hear a lot. And I know for me, it's like all of a sudden, so often things seem to happen all of a sudden, but it's not all of a sudden because it's a process that's happening underneath the surface that I don't see until all of a sudden I haven't been to a meeting or for weeks or all of a sudden foods are getting back in my program, you know, back my plan, excuse me. So um, this spiritual malady that, that plays into this, this ego is, is talked about um, in the big book. Um, it, it talks about in the third step, essentially that self-centeredness is our problem. 
Um, that's a pretty brief description of ego, but it says self-centeredness, selfishness, ego, egocentric is what we like to call it nowadays. And nowadays back then was in the thirties. And um, so we know from that, that it's there. I will also tell you, and I'm looking for it, but there are multiple mentions later on, <clears throat> excuse me, the AA 12 and 12 that talk about ego. And they talk about ego in a couple ways. They talk about it in um, the sense that things in our life are ego fodder. They talk about things that we are ego-driven individuals. They talk about how the steps are ego-reducing factors. So all throughout the, the uh, AA 12 and 12, there's like 12 mentions of ego throughout the steps, every single step. So I might think, well, ego reduction, that's in step one. But actually every single step is all about ego reduction. So we've talked about now ego, this big, this big word that's a little three-letter word that's a big word being the problem. It's the, the spiritual malady that ends up manifesting in my forgetting that I'm a compulsive eater. What does it say in our, in our, OA, uh, in our OA Brown book, right? Which I, to be honest, my closed-mindedness kept me from opening the back of those appendices for years. And I will tell you that nine years ago, I was exposed to some of the information that I have today. And then I found it in the uh, OA Brown book like three years ago. And for years, I was like, you know what we need to do? We need to have X become conference of privileged literature. We need Y to become conference of privileged literature. And I was literally at a retreat and flipped open my book and went, oh my God, it's actually already in our literature, right? So this is my, my, my set-aside prayer is really important to me because that step two application of open-mindedness is huge for ego reduction. Um, so let's see here. So, uh, so I talked about there being one treatment for compulsive eatingism. Okay, so the second treatment for compulsive eatingism is the 12 steps of, of Overeaters Anonymous. You know, the, the program of Overeaters Anonymous that's suggested as a program of recovery. And the fellowship that I come to here supports my action in this way. I, I align myself with people who were like-minded, who, who want a God in their life, some kind of power greater than themselves. I need a power. When I, am, when I, am, when I look and see how insidious this mind power disease is, it scares me enough to say like, man, I need a power. I am powerless. I got a lot of power that I can use to really mess up my life basically. So, um, so what is this three letter word that is ego? Like what isn't it, right? In the context of this conversation, this, the context of this conversation in my life isn't the healthy moderating thing between it and superego that's, that's, you know, that's used a lot in the psychiatry world. That's great and it's totally accurate. It's not what we're talking about. Because then that would say that our fellowship wants us to not have any moderating mental situation going on. And that isn't true, I know to be. I also know that in the big book, again, it says we're egotistical in that, you know, we are selfish and self-centered. I come from a narcissistic core. I come from a place that I look at everything through the lens of how Lynn is affected, in default of being a compulsive overeater, untreated. Um, and again, knowing that treatment doesn't mean going just for me, just going to meetings having a sponsor. I've done all of that. I've worked, I have been on convention committees and been in ego. I have had a sponsor and been in ego, more than one sponsor and been in ego. I've done, I can do everything that I'm doing and either be an ego or I can be actively working toward humility and ego reduction, right? So the other thing that, uh, that ego isn't, it's just everything that's wrong about me. 
everything that's wrong about me is the ego. Therefore, I have no way of identifying what it is, how to deal with it. You know, um, it, it isn't that. And I did that for a long time. And I thought, well, I guess, you know, you'd hear it. And I would use it as that club, you know, the spiritual club I would use on myself. And quite frankly, I'll use it on others. Oh, yeah, that's their ego, you know. So what I can tell you, uh, one of the things in our literature that it says in our OA 12 and 12, it says we never grew up. We never grew up. So when I take that in, in a context of I've never grown up, and I think of what a little kid is like, a two-year-old in particular, particular, a two-year-old thinks completely about themselves. There's a time that a two-year-old, or maybe I don't know what age it is, but there's a time when a baby is no longer a baby. And a baby looks at their mother, not just as, am I getting my needs met right now? Good or bad, black or white, mom is either good or bad. Mom is either bending to my will or she's not, that's it. When I am in that stage of my life, I am an infant. When I can see that mom has something going on or mom's like, right now, honey, just a minute. You know, when I can do that, I am no longer an infant. I'm starting to become like a growing human being, <laughs> like a human being um, mentally. And so what I can say for myself is my ego manifests in the infantile behavior. And, um, and, it, and, you know, that's what it says in the book. We are selfish, self-centered. We look at everything through how it affects me. We see that in the OA Brown book, it says we never grew up. So this ego is essentially that of an infantile child. It's, you know, take a two-year-old and drop it into my body. And that is basically, and you know, that totally, it, it's true. I mean, I look at that in my life and when my ego is presenting, that is what it looks like. Restless, irritable, discontented. You can't stop me. Don't stop me. You ever pick up a kid that's running and it's, you know, don't stop me. And their, their little legs are still going, you know, and they're, ah. that's the restlessness. I got to go. You can't stop me. I got I got to keep moving. Um, I, there are times I have projects that I, I'm, I've done and then I have to go back. And I don't not want to go back because I'm insulted that I maybe made a mistake or I don't want to go back because I just moved on. You know, I just don't have, I have the attention span of a hummingbird. You know, I'm out of there. I'm, I'm, you know, just, and we see it with little kids. They run around like little lunatics, you know, and that's me in my, in my kind of uh, trigger compulsive eatingism ego. I'm running around like a loon and people can tell, you know, it's, it's really obvious. The uh, irritable, you know, and that gets into why would I be irritated? Because I think everything should be my way. I am irritated because you haven't consulted with me about what you think you should be doing. I'm irritated because I am a natural executive placed in the wrong job. Or I'm now the executive and I don't know what the F I'm doing because I have, you know, I, I want all the shortcuts. I want to just get there. And, uh, you know, that's, that's ego. That's a great way for me to identify my ego in the day I'm in and know that I need some help drastically. You know, and again, I, I tell all the, the, the women I work with, I said, you know, there is, there, this program is workable with the exact amount of time you have in the day. Because every single time I go to a meeting, I get in my car, I go to the supermarket, I'm, you know, walking around and people have masks or not masks or whatever the heck's going on with masks. And I have an opportunity to say, God, can you help me? Can you just help me be here right now that everything's okay? Because my mind in, in untreated compulsive eatingism will absolutely tear itself apart arguing with you in my head. I mean, it's what it does. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I am just, just doing that. And uh, some people have called that queen baby. 
you know, off with your head. I throw people away. You know, I used to say all the time in my share that I did not do demographics. I did psychographics. Like I truly like left relationships and said, oh, I'm just going to be different next time. I'll just be different. No problem. I'm, I'm, I learned from all my stuff, you know, even if I vilified the old employer or the boyfriend or whatever it was, I still like, I just thought somehow next time I'll be better, you know? And I don't know about you, but if behavior keeps happening, it's not old, right? So why can I say, well, I'm acting out an old behavior? Well, it's not old because I did it yesterday. You know, it's not, but um, so this, this sense of this inner child, the last one uh, is discontented. It says we are discontented. That is what I look like as, a, as an untreated compulsive eater. Any day I'm in right now, it can, it can come up. And a big thing, again, taking this moral issue out of it, in the big book, it doesn't say uh, if, you know, we, we watch for these things in the 10 step, if they somehow miraculously come up, right? I mean, it says when. It's always when. We are, but we have to be watchful. Why? Because it's going to come up. It doesn't make us pure as the snow. There's all these things through the big book that talk about it not being, you know, we are not saints. And yet so often I will look at my own, my ego will tell me you're not good enough. You know, you're not nice enough. You have to do all this and make people like you also, you know. Um, but that, that discontentedness, it really is like for me, that, that manifestation is I get the thing and like literally minutes after the thing, it's like, oh, that's not the thing. Now you need to get the other thing, you know, get the car. Oh, now I've got the worst car, you know, now, or get the, you know, I, I get obsessed with things. I'm going to remodel the house. I'm midway through remodeling the house and I'm thinking about doing the whatever, you know, I got the job and now that job's not good enough. So it's completely a mind. It has nothing to do with the outside circumstances, right? Ever. It's completely an inside job. The calls are coming from inside the house. I am, you know, in untreated compulsive eatingism. I am just, you know, I'm prone to that type of thinking, which is why, you know, the, again, that constant every day is a day we must, you know, every moment checking in with God, check my motives. You know, it just says, doesn't it, even when we look like we're trying to be good, you know, isn't it usually something where I'm trying to get something that I think I need? Um, so uh, let's see here. So the other part of this, this function with the ego that, that is important, and it does talk about it in, uh, in our Brown book, talks about it. So the appendix that I was referring to is called The Disease of the Body. They tricked me into reading it. Um, and it says here, uh, hence, so talking about surrender, but I'm talking about the problem first, then I'm gonna switch over to surrender in just a minute. Um, hence, one no longer needs to maintain defiant individuality, but can live in peace and harmony with the environment, sharing and participating freely, especially with others in the group, other members of the group. And then he uses the term obese, but let's face it, let's just say untreated compulsive eater. The untreated compulsive eater or the now treated compulsive overeater no longer defies, but accepts health guidance and control from the outside. As OA members relinquish their negative, aggressive feelings towards themselves and life, they find themselves overwhelmed by positive feelings of love, friendliness, tranquility, and pervading contentment. Now, isn't that a pink cloud we can all hop on? That's, that's the aftermath of surrender, right? And I think that for me too, the term pink cloud for years has been something that I, I kind of dismissed as what you get when you don't really know what you're doing, 
right? That somehow you settle in and get mirthful or whatever, you know, and what I can, and, and that's, you know, I, I'm all for taking this thing seriously, but I will say that my experience has been when I'm engaged in the principles of this, of this program, this, the program of recovery, that my outlook stays positive, that I do have heaven on earth experiences. I don't need to go back and, and crash and burn again so that I can have another pink cloud. Because it is, again, an, all, an outside job. I can choose. You know, it's my pair of glasses. All of the things that, that we hear that are really true. That uh, it's not my job to assign. That's what, isn't that royalty? Royalty is going to decide what is good and bad. That's not me. I, my job is to take my lumps like everybody else and do my best. It doesn't mean that I'm an amoeba or some kind of sea kelp, you know, that just floats along. But it does mean that I have an opportunity to see where I can be of service in any opportunity and, and feel my feelings and then appreciate that everybody on this planet, you know, it's universal. We have shared suffering and we have shared love, joy, contentment. Um, he also uh, says in here, and this is a very important um, phrase to me, surrender then is an unconscious event. It is not willed by the individual. It can occur only when one becomes involved in one's unconscious mind in a set of circumstances that signal the undeniable need for an external greater power. And it's interesting that he actually precedes that um, with uh, this idea that uh, surrender comes, uh, he says, it, it is all part of a crisis experience. And so this idea of like surrender, generally speaking, um, in our literature says, you know, the bottom, that crash and burn, the hitting of bottom, its goal is to get us to a surrender. Its goal is to knock the ego out of the driver's seat long enough for us to actually have that sense of, of defeat su sufficient enough to get us into a process. What I know is true for me, and I've seen this in many areas of my life, not, and not just addictive processes, but just everyday experience, is that that crash and burn is not enough in and of itself to actually sustain that experience. That is for me where the steps come in. And you see every single place in these steps where it says, you know, I mean, the way I worked this, the, went through the steps two years ago when it was very, it was a process that was really, um, it, it had focused a lot on step two, which was really, I, I didn't even realize how much I was lacking that kind of experience of step two, you know, years into, into the program, you know, years of, of, and recovery, you know, and just the levels of being able to admit letting admitting that i can grow more that i could learn more my ego doesn't want to hear that it says you obviously are a piece of shit if you hadn't gotten this before right because and that's productive you know so you can tell that's the other thing of the ego is, is generally speaking not productive thinking um and so uh it, this thing about um the it, it has to it's part and parcel you have this hitting a bottom it can actually create a surrender but that's not intended to last forever. And that's why, you know, I tell all the women, and I know it to be true for me, if I'm relying on a memory of that horrible hitting a bottom, the shame and humiliation that came from the last binge, it says it in more about alcoholism, that it won't be there. 
right? It's not going to be there, which is what I love about the big book. Cause I mean, it just, it's just pretty much like, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, yeah, you're not going to have it. The difference is today. I know that because I'm not like waiting around to be struck, not abstinent, some weird, you know, negative lightning bolt hit me like, you know, nah, you're going to lose it this time. It's not that it's my abstinence is a result of continuing to do this process to the best of my ability to further keep my ego down. You know, the recuperative powers of the ego, someone once said, are, would be humorous if they weren't so tragic in their circumstances. In this case, they were referring to an alcoholic, but quite frankly, I think that, you know, it applies for me as a compulsive eater. Someone might look at laugh when it's not at its very worst, you know? I mean, sometimes it's really bad, but someone may look, I may chuckle myself at a meeting. Oh my God, there I go again, crazy, you know? But the truth is, you know, if I allow it, and go, well, that's not a big deal. You know, if I see it, if it's pointed out to me, if I'm doing a 10 step and I'm going, but you know what? I'm just not ready to say, I'm sorry. If I'm looking at it and going, I'm just not ready to admit that's me. I'm not, mid I'm not willing to admit there's things about me deep down that I didn't cause even, but until I do that, I can't address them. With what's going on in the world today, there's an area of my life that I never asked for a certain mindset or look. I never thought, I never even thought that it could be the case about me. And I heard something on the radio about it and it said, don't shame the person, just being able to like admit it. And they, they pointed it like, just like an addiction. If you don't know that it's there, if you're not willing to admit it, you can never do anything about it. And they opened my step to of humility. 10 minutes. Left. Thank you. And I'll probably wrap it up in five. Um, so we talk about defiance and this is the part where the defiance and the ego work together to keep me in my addiction and particularly keep me is this. I have this hitting of bottom. I go, oh my God, I'm never gonna do that again, right? And this is the terms of untreated. I'm not gonna ever do that again, that was horrible. Could be in my work life, could be in my food life, could be with my husband, you know, whatever. And then things start getting better. I'm not doing it anymore, right? But what's happening underneath the surface is that ego is going back up. You know, I, it was pushed out completely and it's like, bring it, come on, let's get it. She's, she's all over here, you know, we're just gonna come up. All of a sudden, you know, I'm starting to have those feelings again of the restless and irritable and discontented. If I don't address my addiction, we see that with our friend Jim, who drove out to the country, right? Didn't address, he didn't, he didn't continue his spiritual development. He had a really bad walloping and when I'm out of that again, my wife's going to leave me. I, you know, we see that. We see that with Fred, who out in the, um, also in more about alcoholism, one of my favorite stories, relate to Fred quite a bit said, I decided that I knew better. I felt better and went, maybe I'm, making, maybe I'm making a big deal of it. Oh, that's, that happens to me all the time. Making some progress and I start saying to myself, well, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, obviously. Otherwise I'd be struggling more. Instead of saying, wow, isn't it awesome that I'm not struggling so much to do this, you know? And again, this isn't a moral issue. This is how this, it says the problem centers in my mind rather than my body. So I got to look at my mind and apply a spiritual process to a mind that can be narcissistic and selfish. So we want that pervading contentment. We want that continue. I want that for my life. I want to be contented. Um, and uh, he says here, our friend, Dr. Lindner, who God bless him, passed away in like the eighties. One compulsive overeater, once they surrender at the unconscious level, their compliance with the disciplines of the program of recovery, I put, that's in print 
of recovery, not the fellowship, not that we shouldn't go to the fellowship, and I think the fellowship is awesome, but I have to use a program of recovery as outlined in the 12 steps, does not lessen with time, leading to the inevitable, and he says regaining of weight, but let's face it, the inevitable bite, action, compulsive behavior around food. They continue to get messages from the unconscious that the need for outside help will remain for a prolonged, if not indefinite period. Their wholehearted cooperation is then forthcoming and their construction action takes the place of skin deep insurances that will merely, that they will merely comply temporarily. And he does go on and I wanna make sure to leave plenty of time for you guys to, to share and, and maybe ask questions, but he does talk about the difference between compliance and surrender. And um, the difference being that compliance is at the surface, it's there, how often we're people pleasers. And I used to be of the, of the thought that if I just did that, then my brain would follow. You know, I'm just gonna do the thing, you know, but I learned that acting as if isn't about fake it till you make it. Acting as if is about wholeheartedly doing something as though if I do this with all my heart, it's gonna work. That's for me in the, in the context of the steps. Acting as if I do this will lead to what the book tells me is going to happen. Every, every one of those steps has a promise. I'm gonna feel new power flow in in step three. I'm gonna be able to look the world in the eye after step five. I'm gonna, you know, nine has a litany of them. 10, I'm gonna be restored to a sanity that I, when, when I see a food that it's trigger food for me, I recoil as if from a hot flame. So um, that's, you know, that's what I'm going for here. And it's not a moral issue. If there's anything at all that I can, that anybody takes away from this today is that this isn't about pop psychiatry or, oh, wait, you know, they're put, trying to make a mental process out of this. We have a spiritual process. But when I see over and over again that ego, selfishness, we didn't grow up as our problem, I don't need to go anywhere else to go, what's my problem? I've been told, right? I don't need to, to treat it today with being a good girl, with complying, with what will they think of, right? What do they, what do my fellows think of me if I don't X, Y, Z, and I don't qualify in this or that way or whatever it is, what I treat my compulsive eating-ism with today is God, is a power. Can you help me with the power? If, I, if I'm tied to a chair and the house is burning down and I don't care, then I don't need a power. But my life is important to me. My fellows are important to me. My family is important to me. And so today I need a power. And I say I'm a compulsive eater. I'm recovered from a state of seemingly hopelessness, hopeless, excuse me, mind and body. And I'm, I'm recovered that way through, the, through a power that has solved my problem. And um, I will close with this. And um, I really encourage everybody, you know, I didn't want to just read the chapter, you know, the disease, um, the disease of the body, but I encourage, I encourage everybody to read it. And I, I will say this as well. I'll end with something from the big book. And uh, it's in the, also an appendix, and it's the medical opinion on Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, these doctors, there's a lot of them. There's psychiatrists, there's medical doctors that are, that are talking in here. But in particular, there's somebody named Dr. Harry Tebow. Some of you may be familiar with him. I'm not going to read anything from his works because I don't have to, because we have something here from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. As a psychiatrist, I have thought a great deal about the relationship of my specialty, and he says here to AA. And I have come to the conclusion that our particular function 
can very often lie in preparing the way for the patient to accept any sort of treatment or outside help. You know, and you see that throughout our appendices in OA. It says, send the compulsive eater to Overeaters Anonymous, not as a, uh, I'm doing this, and why don't you go to OA? It's like, you send them to OA, and then you have some hope of actually treating them in any other way. Um, I now conceive the psychiatrist's job to be the task of breaking down the patient's inner resistance, that's defiance, which is, which, so that which is in him will flower as under the activity of the AA program, and I will say again, program of recovery. The 12 steps as outline of a program of recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. What I will also say is that I bless this doctor that has passed on so long ago in Overeaters Anonymous, because actually if you take what he has written in that appendix, it is absolutely verbatim, almost exactly what you will read in Harry Tebow's papers. So we don't need to have Harry Tebow's papers created as a OA document, but it is the tip of the iceberg. I will say that it is a um, Easter egg of the fact of, of what's going on underneath the surface and how I can treat it with a spiritual principle. I'm so grateful to be here today. I'm gonna go ahead and turn the back over to Mitch to do whatever he needs to do. Thank you, Lynn. So the first one here is Debbie and Hayward, and I'm going to unmute her. Thank you. This is Debbie, compulsive eater. This is a really simple question. Mm -hmm. um, could you, you, dis, you at the beginning said an abbreviated version mm -hmm. of the set-aside prayer mm -hmm. compared to what I've heard in my meetings. Mm -hmm. Could you repeat it? Because your, your nice, succinct version felt like something that I could use. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And also my contact information, anybody feel free to reach me, but here's uh, here it is. God, please enable me to set aside everything I think I know about whatever for an open mind and a new experience. Thank you. Thank You're you. very welcome. <laughs> Let's see here. So next Julie R. from Oregon, and then is my tech going to unmute her? I'm trying. I don't know why it's not working. Oh. Sorry. That's okay. Let me do it Oh, myself. here she goes. She's on. <laughs> I think it just takes a while. Let's see. Um, hi. Hi. Great talk, but it's all new to me. And I wondered if you might be able to somehow provide the page numbers in the books because you went really fast. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, again, I'm also willing to, I'll put my info in the chat. In particular, the OA Brown book. Right. Okay. Yep. So the appendices starts on page 198, appendix C, and it goes to 204. And then in the big book, I want to say page 20, it's 23, uh, it's, it's Roman numerals <laughs> in the doctor's opinion. So I want to say it is 20XX, XXVIII. -I. So that's 28 in Roman numerals. Okay. There you go. That's the big book. And then, um, I don't remember exactly where in the OA 12 and 12 it says we never grew up. I want to say that it's probably in step one. <laughs> it might be step two. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. 
Let's see. Nancy B in LA. Okay, I'm unmuted. My name is Nancy Beecham and I am a compulsive overeater. And I am proud to tell you that I am very close to the area where OA was born. And um, I am celebrating my 44th year of abstinence and 150 pound weight loss this month. And so it's been a very exciting time for me. And the thing that's so frightening is that every time I've been speaking at meetings all over the world, which you get to do right now, which is great for an old timer like me who uh -huh. can't drive at night anymore, um, I get hundreds and hundreds of phone calls. So people are really suffering. So those of us that are here, I'm here to tell you with what you told us today, it becomes very clear that suffering is very optional. But I believe for me, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. When I came here, I was so sick. I had been to jail. As you said, this disease took me to places where I hope most people do not have to go. The loneliness that I felt, and I had to get rid of people, places, and things. My life was so cluttered when I got here. And it was very hard for me not to grab a man at a coffee pot and bring him home. And my two little girls, to leave them alone, they were seven and nine all the time. Because now I found all these new friends that wanted me to reach after five. I had to get to the meeting. And the truth is for me, I think it took me so long to work these steps. I don't know if it was all ego or it was the illness that made me keep moving so fast. It was so painful and so difficult to sit here just to read, to be able to have any clarity. But I'll tell you that if I hadn't abstained, I wouldn't have had the clarity and the willingness would have done nothing for me. Yeah. So I think the thing that that you didn't mention, and I wanted to know if you talk about a little bit, how much the abstaining moved you forward to be able to grasp all that you're grasping, because your, your, your ability to explain this program and to share it, for those of you who are on this, we're really blessed, you know, because I could quietly sit here and really hear what you were saying. And for a compulsive overeater to sit still, because remember, I believe that this is all about a spiritual experience. And I, I know now at 44 years that I can't, while I'm talking, I can't learn a thing. It's when I'm listening. And I can't hear God speak to me to tell me his will for me unless I learn how to sit at a brook and listen to the water for hours at a time. So I wish for every one of you that you get a moment of peace where you see the winds and the trees, you know, the trees blowing in the wind. And because then you'll know whenever you're in trouble, maybe someday you could get back to that place that you got once. And this thing comes and goes for a long time. But I was just curious how you felt about the absence coming in and cleaning up more and more to make it a little easier for you to do what you're asking us to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nancy, for your question, because, you know, I didn't go into it a lot, but that self-talking mind stops me from actually listening when I'm listening. Like I could be at a meeting and truly not have heard anything the speaker said or just do time travel, you know, it's like what? But uh, the abstinence piece of it, you know, I think it's really important for me to remember when I'm working with people and, and my experience was that I did not come in because I had some other experience with some other th substances. I got the idea when I walked into a 12 step program that what was going on a little bit, 
when I work with a newcomer, especially, or even, um, you know, I don't expect that they necessarily get abstinent right away. But as we learn about step one, because there's some great opportunities and more about alcoholism, et cetera, where we say, now is the time. Now is the time to diagnose yourself. Are you the real deal? And what I do with a sponsee for myself is I work with somebody and that's the time for them to figure out like what their triggers are and you know all these things, but also diagnose themselves with the spiritual malady. Because if you don't think that you have it, then what I've got for you isn't going to help. And then we say, oh, let's take step one together. Let's do this together because once you take step one, having a slip is like, I don't have this sense of, well, go to jail, don't collect your $50, you're back at step one. It is where you are at if you are not abstaining. I absolutely tell people, I will keep working with you through this process, doing the very best you can. Just know, I don't ever want anyone to leave Overeaters Anonymous saying it didn't work because if you are eating, you, it's very difficult to get, a, it says it in the book, why this insistence, this is in the A12 term, why this insistence that every AA must hit bottom? Because who would be willing to do the work if we hadn't? And that's why you hang on, it says it over and over again, hang on to everything you got, baby, because we're about to go forward. Everything you had, I love a juicy laurel. Let me tell you, I want to rest on my laurel so bad, you know, and yet I, I can't do it. I have to keep going for more and really going for this program. So remaining abstinent and just saying those foods aren't mine. Those behaviors aren't mine anymore. Anyone who tries to tell me, but it's food and food is different. I tell them this food, certain foods for me, for me, my experience and, and behaviors became a drug. Once they are a drug, they are no longer food. Cocaine is not food. Certain foods for me aren't food. So that's the, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> All right. We have time for one more. It looks like got about three minutes left. Looks like Suji is the next person in line. Okay. Lynn, thank you so much. I don't know where to begin. I'm so glad that this was taped because I'll have a chance to listen to it again. I just have uh, one question and that's about, you mentioned briefly compliance versus surrender. Was that a topic of Dr. Thibault or where did that come from? <laughs> it's actually, funny enough, it's, it's in the OA brown book appendix, the same appendix, but okay. it's, I mean, and I don't have a problem saying it's crazy. You can literally lay one on top of the other. I, I told my husband, I said, if this guy was still alive, I would fully kiss him on the lips for doing this because it, it is the same. But so therefore, yes, it, it is in our Brown book. And he says, you really need to look at it. I was, compliance is huge. And he says, not only is compliance not surrender, being in compliance can block you from surrender. Because your ego will tell you, you're doing the deal. You know, you got sponsors, you're going to meetings, you're on a convention. That was for me. I was on a convention committee when I had my first slip. Who would have thought? I was doing it all. Doing it all. And yet I was in ego. I was restless, irritable, and discontented. Well, I was wrong. We have time for one more. Oh, great. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, Hi. Hi, um, this is Larissa in New York, a compulsive reader, newly back from relapse, 150-pound weight gain. So grateful to hear you today, and um, thank you, thank you for your service. I will listen again. I am stuck in that, like I'm just newly back, literally less than a month, but I'm in that space of willingness. And when I first came into OA, it was all about little Miss OA doing everything that was asked of me. It was all about compliance, 
And it wasn't until I, I came back desperate and willing to go to any, any lanes. And the interesting thing this time is I feel so um, clear that I'm dying and that I need to be here. And yet I don't feel desperate and willing to go to any lanes. I'm willing to go to many lanes, but I, I, I don't feel the same depth of despair before I had the God of my understanding and all the tools that this program has taught me for how to handle life. Um, so any suggestions on how to get, how to hit bottom if you're not quite there, but you know you need to be there. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, and I so appreciate you. We met yesterday on the on the the meetup. You know, I I would say because it's scary, right? It's scary to hear. It's it's an unconscious act. It can't be. It it sounds it it sounds counterproductive. I don't want anybody to sit in shame, but I will say this: be willing to sit in that suffering. Be willing to really feel it, and and just be willing to and read that appendix. Read how insidious it is, because that for me was something that was really eye-opening that, oh my God, like, I don't have any control over this. I don't have any control over this. Um, and certainly reach out to me separately and, and I'm happy to share the process that I went through as well. With, and it's the steps, it's the steps, but it's, it wasn't a format that was, I found particularly helpful. So God bless you, definitely reach out. All right, thank you. Um, that's all, oh, there we go. That's the timer. That's all the time we have for this session. I would like to again thank Lynn for her workshop. And thank you, talk. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and for all those who did service that uh, made this session possible, thank you all for your service.